Hey listeners, are you enjoying our podcasts and coaching advice? Do you feel like some guidance and accountability could help you stay motivated and focused during these uncertain pandemic times? We love connecting with our listeners and collaborating to make training work for your goals, your life, your personality. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we want to offer any new clients $20 off the first month of coaching, which is normally $150. Email us at Julie and Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com to set up a time to connect over the phone to learn more. And be sure to mention this special offer as one of our loyal listeners. Our runners are often asking us how they can optimize their recovery. And aside from getting more sleep, one of our number one tips is compression socks. Compression socks can help increase blood flow from your legs to your heart and raise your blood oxygen levels. They also minimize leg pain and cramping and reduce swelling. So they're great for after that long run or hard workout. Our favorites are Lily Trotter's compression socks. They are the strongest compression that you can get without a doctor's prescription, and they are beautiful and fun to wear with your running gear. We love their Battle Axe collection, which recognizes powerful, unstoppable women warriors, but the socks can be worn by men or by women. So we're happy to have them as a sponsor, and they are offering our podcast listeners 20% off with the code RFF. 20 on the website, Lily Trotters, that's L-I-L-Y-T-R-O-T-T-E-R-S.com. We just wanted to take a quick break to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, UFOs. If you're a longtime listener, you know that UFO shoes are an integral part of our recovery, and we've been wearing their new boots all winter long. UFOs are the original recovery footwear brand, helping to reduce load and stress so your body can rebuild throughout the day. Often, the aches and pains we're feeling in our feet, ankles, knees, and even our hips can be due to not wearing supportive shoes. We wear our supportive running shoes when we're running, but what do we wear when we're not running? UFOs reduce shock impact on the body by 37%, making it easier for your body to recover faster. Stay tuned to our podcast and social media channels this month for a chance to win a pair of UFOs. And check them out now on their website at UFOs, O-O-F-O-S dot com. One of the pieces of running gear that we've both used for 15 years is our spy belt. It's one of our favorite pieces of running gear. Spy belt stands for small personal items. And we both started using it many years ago to carry our nutrition during races. It's great, no bounce, no chafing, and a great way to carry nutrition. But since then, I'll be honest, I use mine as my purse. I use it for my phone, my keys, wallet, and strap it on and don't have to worry about carrying a purse. So it's one of our favorite running items and we are so excited to have spy belt as one of our sponsors and they are offering our listeners 15 percent off through may 15th you can order online at spybelt.com and enter the code run farther faster 15 all one word lowercase letters give it a try we think that you'll love the spy belt for whatever you have to carry when you need your hands free Hey, Lisa. Hey, Julie. How's it going? How are you? Uh, it's going. I'm I'm in the best mood this week because the wet. I feel like we always start out this way, but it's so true. The weather is so great this week. It's just the most beautiful running weather. Um, I just can't get enough of it. In fact, I've definitely run more this week than I probably should. 
but um, I'm going to let it go. And I'm sure at some point it's going to rain and, and be crappy. And I'll go back to, you know, not loving running. <laughs> Don't you feel that way that right now though? I feel great. I'm like, seriously, I think the happiest I've been in recent memory, like probably in a year. So I just feel like it's like a new, I definitely feel super happy and just like, uh, like, like, like I'm running on air. So yeah, I feel good. It's, I feel like we've reached a turning point and things are good. Really good. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, we're both seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, vaccinations are here. Kids are starting to go back to school. I know your kids have been in school, but, um, for a while hybrid on my kids, they're, they're like at the end, the very last possible moment, but there are dates for them to go back. And that is giving me so much hope. And my son, who um, is on his high school cross-country team, actually is running cross-country physically with other people, not virtually now, and actually has meets this week, so this month. So it's just things are looking up. So I love to hear that you're also really happy, and that makes me really happy, Lisa. So that's awesome. Oh, I, do have one, <laughs> I do have one funny story. and. Actually, oh, I, I love your funny stories. Just, like I reached my breaking point last night. Like here we are talking about, I'm, this has been a great week. The weather's so lovely, but look, I'm still in the throes of having um, kids home 24 seven. Nobody has gone back to school. Nobody has been in, physically inside a school building in my family at all. So that being said, everything's going well this week. I feel like we're in a groove. We had spring break. Everyone was refreshed after having a break and we're back at it. And last night, you know, I, I, I'm getting more sleep this week. I clean up the kitchen. I'm ready for bed. I go back downstairs just to let the dog out and I come back downstairs. And there is literally like yellow shit all over my kitchen. I'm like, what in, what is this? It's like against the walls. It looks like slime. And I realized that like, <laughs> basically in the middle of the night, how I sleep, because, you know, our kids are so nocturnal, they're teens. And again, they're not going to school early in the morning. So I'm, Ella decided to make a lemon meringue pie from scratch last night. I, I assume at like nine at night and I wasn't paying attention. You know, we'll talk about this, but we had our zoom coaching call with our runners and I just wasn't, I was in the same room. I just was so focused on that. I wasn't paying attention to what was happening in my kitchen. But anyway, the point is I end up like scrubbing the, the lemon off the walls and stuff. And I'm sure she had good intentions to clean it up. I could tell it was half-assed clean, but it wasn't clean enough for me to go to sleep with, you know, cause I would have waken up, woken up to bugs. But the point is I'm washing the walls and I'm just thinking they need to be back in school because if they were in school, nobody would be making lemon ring pies, <laughs> you know, which finished up at 11, whatever. So my point is, I love my I'm kids. I'm glad just to hear that, like, our house is not, we'll be like, I'm like, guys, it's midnight. And, and my kids do have to wake up for at least to be on Zoom school, even if they don't have to be in. But I'm like, guys, it's midnight. Like, what are we doing? This is crazy. And, um, you know, which will segue eventually into our talk about sleep with, with our with our expert this week. But, but yeah, I, I'm glad to hear I'm not. I'm like, oh, is anybody else here? Like, their kids are up at midnight doing random stuff. And, and, I, and I'm just realizing it's midnight. And, you know, I like to go to bed early usually. And I have not been able to do that recently. That is just not happening. But I can sleep a little later. So, so that, you know, so that balances out. But, um, but I'm glad to hear we're not the only ones, although I did not have lemon meringue all over my kitchen. I found some other crazy stuff and 
always find stuff in the sink that I'm like, really? Like you couldn't have just put that in the dishwasher or what rinse that off. But so I feel your pain, but um, but I'm, I do feel a little sense of validation that we're not the only crazy people that are up at um, midnight on a school night. Oh my God, call me anytime I'm up. I'm up dealing with this. But so let me ask you this. You're up late, your kids are back in school. So you're still getting up kind of early, but what, um, when do you do your runs typically? Do you do them after you drop them off at school? Yeah, That's I've great. been doing like anytime, like in the mid morning. Luckily I have the flexibility mm-hmm. to go out when I can. So, um, so uh, you know, I can go, I have not, I've not been up to run at five in the morning or five thirty in the morning for, I mean, I can't remember over a year. So that, that to me is good. And I like that, especially, I mean, as it gets into the summer and I'll get hotter, then I won't probably do that like as later, but now it like lets it get warmed up a little bit. And so, so yeah, so I have that flexibility. So usually I have to take them to school this week. We were, the kids were for this week after spring break, they kept them virtual um, for a week just to make sure everybody's okay. And our school does testing. So they had COVID testing um, yesterday. And once they make, get a baseline and make sure everybody is good, then they'll go back next week into hybrid. And actually, one of my kids starts going back. They were two two days and two days for the high school and the middle school. And now it's going to be three days for the middle school and two days for the high school. So adding a so day. exciting. Freedom. It, it, is, it is, but it's all, well, but it's not. I mean, not that, you know, my kids are independent and they're fine when they're home, but um, that nobody's, I never have any day that everybody's in school. It's, it's alternating. So one kid, three days a week, two kids, two days a week. And um, for us, it's private school. So I have to drive back and forth and it, it takes a lot of time. It, it takes up, you know, at least a half hour each way. So it's an hour of my day that, um, you know, cuts into the work time or other things and, and are now back up. I think I may be one of the only people, well, maybe not one of the only people, but I'm maybe in, in the minority that isn't exactly looking forward to going back to the craziness of pre-pandemic life, which I hope we don't get back to, but you know, all the practices starting and the weekends getting filled up and kind of liked our lazy lifestyle for, you know, I wouldn't say lazy, but low key lifestyle. So um, I think it's going to be a transition back to that, but yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I feel the same way. While certainly there's a huge part of me that wants normalcy and structure for my kids who deserve all of the opportunities that every other kid deserves during this time that they're missing out on. I hope that there are some lessons learned from this that we don't need to be busy to be successful. Um, There are ways to live a happy, fruitful, and fulfilling life without filling it with busy work. Um, So yeah, absolutely. I hope people have learned from this that meetings do not have to be in person. I hope to never go to a PTA meeting in person again. I think it's amazing to do it on Zoom and attendance has never been higher. So let's Let's keep some of this that we've learned. And in fact, that gives me a thought. Maybe we should do an episode at some point when we're out of this, like all the things about the pandemic that we want to keep sort of silver linings for lack of a yeah. you know better word, a cliche, but what are some things that we'd like to see continue after this is over? Because I feel like we've all learned a lot about ourselves and what makes us tick and particularly, and we'll go more into this um, at the end of our discussion, we talked, we alluded to that with our guest today, because our guest today um, is a sleep expert, uh, Dr. Mita Singh. She is um, an expert in sleep, and she is a um, sleep medicine physician, and she is out of the Henry Ford Clinic, and she's amazing. And one of the things she talked about, of course, is honoring our biological tendencies. So there are people who are nocturnal, there are people who are early birds. And 
this pandemic and this whole time has allowed all of us to tune into what our natural rhythms are and, and allow ourselves to sleep in a little bit more if we need that because we're not all rushing off to work. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, wouldn't it be nice if we could continue as a society to be able to give ourselves a little bit of grace and allow ourselves to honor our nocturnal tendencies? And perhaps finally, there will be some discussions among school systems about the harm that it causes kids to start school at dark 30 versus waiting an hour or two because teens especially are naturally nocturnal. So it was, it's been, it was a super interesting discussion and we'll formally introduce Dr. Singh, but oh my gosh. Um, and I think, I'm sure you feel this way too. One of the highlights of the discussion was hearing about what she did. We won't give it away, but what she did to help the Nats win the World Series. She is, um, was one of sort of the team doctors for the Nats in 2019 when the Nats won the World Series. And she talks about that a little bit, what she did for the team. And oh my gosh, you could just hear it in her voice how exciting that was. And it was just really heartwarming to hear her talk about how she was able to use her skills to benefit the team. Um, is already a winning or a team. a tangible benefit, a tangible yeah. benefit. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. thought that was really, really cool and um, really enjoyed talking to her too. So absolutely. Yes, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what went on. We had a good weekend last weekend with our runners um, who must've gotten some good sleep because we had uh, runners go to um, the Salisbury marathon and half marathon, which is, is in Salisbury, Maryland, which is the Eastern shore, a nice flat course. Um, and, uh, you know, an example of a race that was pulled off, a pretty big race that was pulled off successfully uh, with safety protocols in place and really let our runners get back to feeling like they were actually racing. I remember one of our runners who ran the rate, who ran the half marathon, Mimi, sent a picture when she got there that with a, from a restaurant window that had on it, welcome marathoners, good luck marathoners. And it felt like, you know, that race excitement again, that was really, I, I loved seeing that picture because I thought, wow, it's like a real race and the city's excited and they're, you know, got that um, race day magic again. So, um, so we had really huge success. All of our runners who ran it had amazing um, performances. It was a beautiful day and a great course and they all trained really hard. And, um, you know, uh, we had one runner who was basically coming back from injury to get back to the marathon distance. And he finished within a few seconds of his PR, which is incredible for coming back from an injury. When he first came to us in February, didn't know he'd be able to run. Yes, can yeah, I talk about that for a second? Okay, so a body is, he's a talented runner and he came to us, um, Yes, as you mentioned, he came to us in um, early 2021 and we started working with him and he had had some really successful marathon and half marathon times, which indicated that he was definitely destined at some point and he's in his early 50s to qualify for Boston for his age group. But he wanted to get to the start line healthy of a marathon and get back to training at a higher mileage but um, at the same time, when we started looking at potential spring marathons, we quickly realized, of course, that there weren't a ton out there. Um, so we picked Salisbury, um, particularly because we saw a lot of posts by the race directors, the race director who mentioned his confidence in his race happening. And also very, he provided a lot of details about the permits and how he was working with the community in Salisbury, Maryland to ensure that the race would take place safely. And it brought you and me a lot of comfort in knowing that the race likely would not be canceled. So that was kind of the impetus for both of us picking this race for our runners who wanted an early April race. So 
And setting up his training plan, it was a little bit tricky because he he's a really talented runner. He's used to running high mileage. He's someone who easily on a great day could run in the 320s, which he hadn't done before, but he just wasn't quite there yet because he was coming off of an injury when he came to us. So we had to balance kind of um, getting him back to his baseline, but also not doing too much where he would get re-injured and it's winter. So it really worked out. And I think what was really exciting and something that we need to remind ourselves too, as runners is you don't always have to have three or four 20 milers to be able to run 26.2. He had one, he had one 20 miler in there and the rest of his runs were 18, 16. He had a couple of longer runs with tempo in there, but he nailed all of his workouts. And he knew also when he was feeling extra fatigue, he would take it upon himself to take a rest day or move things around. And he just trained really smart, but also he was patient and put his trust in us knowing that, Hey, this is different than what I've done in the past, but I'm going to trust you. So on race day, he um, had a plan where we really thought on a perfect day that he'd be able to do something in the three twenties. He ended up running um, in the 330s, 25 seconds from his previous PR in 2019 on an even flatter course, if that's possible, Chicago, when he was much better trained. So the fact that in a shorter training cycle, he was able to do almost equivalent to his previous PR and do it in these times indicates to both of us that he's easily going to do 320s the next time. But I think the lesson learned in this is that... um, you know, it's really important when you go into a race to have a goal, B goal, C goal, and also understand that when racing, even especially when you're coming off of an injury, you kind of don't know what to expect. So it's really important to have confidence in yourself, believe in your training and know that even if things don't go perfectly, you can still do well. And that's exactly what happened. And, and we're super proud of him. And then the other runner that we had that ran Salisbury is Aaron Dwyer. And oh my gosh, she had a 38 minute PR, which is incredible. And I just spoke to Aaron yesterday and it was really interesting because look, we're all hard on ourselves and Aaron is a really talented runner and she, we believe based on her shorter distance times, her half marathon times that she had you know, a 340 and change in her. And that was kind of where we had her a goal. And when she started running the race, she said by mile nine, she started feeling a little fatigued and in spite of that, she didn't let her goal go, but rather she adjusted her goals and went right to the B goal and knew that she would be able to still finish strong. Um, around mile 2021, 20, she really hit the wall, but because she had run such a strong training cycle and her first, the first part of her race was she ran so well and she didn't go out too fast. She just ran really consistently. She was able to make it through that last 10 K we've all been there. Who's any of us who've run a marathon, we've all been there when, for whatever reason, whether it's just the day you're having something with your nutrition, you just, the last 10 K is really tough. Um, and that's what happened with Aaron. But in spite of that, she had a 38 minute PR. So what we're going to work on for next time, because you know, we runners are never satisfied. She's incredibly proud, but there's still the best is yet to come. She's going to work on her nutrition a little bit more. So we set her up with one of our dietitians, Melissa McDonough, and she's going to kind of look into, um, why, you know, her nutritional plan this time just didn't quite work for her. She felt like what she was taking wasn't settling in her stomach as well. And even though she had practiced with it, and even though she was following her nutrition plan, it just wasn't working while she was running faster paces. So lesson learned with 
with Aaron is number one, don't be discouraged if your race isn't going exactly as planned because you still can achieve great things, which she did. A 38 minute PR is incredible. And number two is with nutrition, sometimes things can go awry. So always think about when practicing nutrition and Aaron did this, but it's just a reminder to practice your nutrition plan while you are running fast. Because our digestive systems work a lot differently when we're running a long, slow distance, easy run pace for, you know, 18, 20 miles in a marathon or for a half marathon, you know, 10 to 12 miles. than if we're doing a tempo run and taking nutrition, because it's harder for our digestive system to work properly when we're also working so hard to maintain a certain pace. So that's my soapbox. So why don't you talk a little bit about Mimi and what she did? Mimi is a great, great example to another, like another type of runner. Um, you know, we talked about two different types of runners between the first two and, and Mimi is an experienced fast runner. Um, you know, somebody who's qualified for Boston and um, somebody who already has run a lot. And, and Mimi really has relied on us more, I think, to kind of keep her real reined in on her training so that she doesn't do too much and doesn't get injured. And she still runs some pretty tough training runs. I'm always so impressed with her. She wakes up at like four in the morning. She works a full-time job in healthcare. She has a kid, two young girls. Like she wakes up at four in the morning and, um, and she, uh, and gets out and gets her workouts done and totally, totally nails them. So, but she used us, I think, you know, she, she relies on us more for, um, to make sure that she's, she's not doing too much. She's smart. She's training smart. And, um, she, uh, you know, again, through the whole pandemic really hasn't been able to have a race to, to test her fitness. So she's really kind of stayed patient and we pulled back some mileage, worked on some speed, and then we built back up for the half marathon. She decided she would focus on the half marathon distance for the spring. And, and again, she's a fast experienced runner who already had a half marathon PR of one 43, um, which is, you know, great time. So uh, we, during her training, we're, we're seeing her hit times and in her time trials that indicated to us that she could um, hit something closer to the, to the 130, high 130s. Um, so she went into this half marathon again, kind of not knowing where things were because she hadn't raced. But having put in all the work just all throughout the winter, waking up super early, getting out in the dark, getting her workouts in, she always hits all of her workouts uh, you know, with, with everything she's got and hits her paces. And even when she doesn't hit her paces, she hits her efforts. And, um, she had a, a little hiatus in the middle where she had to take some time off for some dental surgery. So she took a little bit of time, but obviously didn't, didn't affect her in the long run. And she went out there and she hit a five minute PR in the half marathon. So that just goes to show that even experienced runners who have, um, you know, a lot of experience under their belt and, and have done this many years in a row that there is still room for improvement when, when you tweak that, um, when you tweak your training a little bit and, and sometimes reining it in can actually end up resulting in, in, um, in a PR. So, uh, so really, uh, we had three amazing results and just super proud of our runners. I wish we could have been there. It sounds like it was a great race and beautiful weather. They got really nice weather. It was cold in the morning, but it was sunny. And it sounds like the race went off really well. And we had so much fun. We were here, obviously, but we had so much fun watching the results come in and getting the, um, you know, that they were texting us pictures. And that was so fun. So I feel like we've had two weekends of runners getting to go do races and, and feel like that getting a little bit of that race excitement back. So it's been fun. Yeah, it's been really fun. And I'm so 
appreciative for, I mean, we said this a lot, but it's worth repeating, these innovative race directors who are willing to take a risk and figure this out and do it safely. I'm so grateful for them because, I mean, we all need some, we need goals and virtual races, while we, we understand and appreciate them, there's nothing like a real race. So speaking of real races, why don't you talk for a few minutes about the latest news out of Boston and the Boston Marathon? Yeah, there are a couple pieces that came out this week and, you know, we're all kind of hanging on like bated breath for, for information and news about Boston with the conflictive feelings of, is it really going to happen? What, what is it going to look like? And a lot of uncertainty. So the first thing that happened was uh, we got those of us who've had a, a streak of, of, um, more than 10 or more Boston marathons did get an email this week that said that we can register um, early. We'll be registering, uh, I think, April 13th, or we'll get an email by April 13th um, that'll give us a link to register. So we get to register early. And uh, that means that, you know, as long as we have a qualifying time, we should get in. I, I heard the statistic that there are about five or 600 runners who have 10 or more and over a hundred that have 25 or more. So um, I think either combined or about, so about six or 700 potential runners that are streakers. So that's a very small percentage of the 20,000, but, um, but that was kind of reassuring. That's always happened in the past. We've always gotten the opportunity to put in our registration uh, before general registration opens. So it kind of gives you, as long as you have a, a qualifying time, it gives you a guaranteed entry. So you don't have to worry about the buffer. Uh, as long as you have anything in your qualifying time. So we got that news this week, which was exciting. And then the second bit came out yesterday that they're starting to set the, the COVID protocols and the changes that are going to have to happen uh, this year, which we obviously expected. I know we've talked about this before, but it was so hard to imagine how Boston would take place with all the buses, you know, thinking about the crowds in the buses and then in Athletes Village, how we all kind of, it's, it's actually one of the highlights for us of hanging around and, you know, hanging out with each other beforehand. And we, you know, seeing, seeing all of our friends' costumes. Yeah. From yeah, exactly. Seeing everybody, you know, we have friends that dress up in fun costumes. So that's like the pre-party. It's the pre-party to the race. And that is really, really fun and a and a big part of the experience for us. I remember last year uh, or two years ago when Boston actually happened, they had something called the Unicorn Club for those of us who had run 10 or more. And I could, I remember forwarding the email saying, oh, you know, look at what the, the, they gave us the opportunity to do was to sign up for this special treatment. For, for a fee, of course, but you could, um, the, the streakers could get a bus to the start and then you would have space inside the high school and, you know, a warm place to be and the bathrooms inside. And it sounded like that would be really nice to have that. And, and, you know, as soon as I thought about it and I talked to you about it, I said, wait a minute, why would I want to do that when I want to ride the bus with our friends and I want to hang out with our friends outside under the tent, even if it's raining, even if it's cold, that's part of the fun. So that is a big part of it. And what came out this week, at least the first part of what is going to be done is that um, the buses will take runners to Hopkinton, but and then it sounds like you will basically just get out and start the race. They are taking away Athletes Village which is really um, hard to grasp. And, and to me, it's very interesting. And I've seen a little bit of discussion about this out on some of our groups that we're in that have Boston Marathoners. Um, for people who've never run before, is this the year they want to run it when it's not going to be a typical Boston experience with all of the things that make Boston, Boston? Uh, it's going to be different. I, they haven't said anything about the expo yet, but I really have to imagine that's going to look different somehow because that's a big, you know, 
big <laughs> indoor event with a lot. I mean, you know, how many times have we gone there and the crowds have been like, you can hardly even walk through the aisles. It's so crowded. So that is going to probably be different. So we're slowly learning bit by bit how um, things will be changed this year and it will be a different experience. And as much as we certainly want to be back in Boston, it, it's going to look a little bit different. So um, we hope that this means that it's going to happen and that plans are underway. It sounds like, you know, really there are actual plans underway to mitigate any risk. There are um, requirements that looks like it'll be, you have to submit two negative COVID tests. So there will be requirements for the runners um, and it'll be interesting to see if that deters people. I've seen some people say, it's just gonna be too much, especially international runners to get here or people who say, I want to have a quote unquote real Boston experience. So I'll wait until next year when things are back to normal. So it'll be interesting to see how it affects uh, the entries. I agree. I think so too. It'll be really interesting to see a couple of thoughts is, I mean, thinking with my, my coach hat on, and that is we're going to have to figure out a way to help our runners who are doing Boston uh, find space to warm up because you know, when you're in Hopkinton, even though you are, you're sitting on a bus, you get off the bus, you walk a little while, you know, it takes a little bit of a walk from the bus to Hopkinton, you hang out, you try not to exert a lot of energy, but you're getting up and down, you're using the bathrooms, and then there's kind of a long walk to the start. And that allows your body to kind of get some blood flow to your muscles before you start running. So to me already, you know, the for me, the I'm worried about people getting off these buses and then standing in these corrals stiff and then having to run. So I think, Great point. you know, it's, it's a I fast. Hope the buses drop. Maybe the buses will drop runners off at the high school. So you still have to make that walk from yeah. where the buses drop. That would be good, but that's a really good point that I didn't think about. And, and that is always kind of the warm up to the start, even if you're just walking to the start, but tons of people do a nice, easy jog to the start. And it is probably, what would you say? Like, a fourth of a mile, half a, probably about a half of a mile to the start by the time you get into your corral. It's a quite, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a ways. Yeah, it feels long, I think, because, you know, it's, it's a slow walk. But yeah, you're right. It's probably a half mile. And then, of course, my mind then went to what, what's the porta potty situation going to look like? Like they drop us off. I say us as if I'm in, I don't know what's going to happen with me, but I'll just say us for purposes of this conversation. But, you know, will I'm assuming that there will be porta potties that correspond with the start corrals because that's where they're dropping you off. So then there's that other concern is just, you know, how to time your nutrition. Um, how long are you going to be in the corrals before you start? So you and I will have to really study this and figure this out for our runners to ensure that, everyone is prepared to the best of their ability. I'm kind of picturing it, hopefully, like Army 10. So the beginning of Army 10, the Army 10 miler, it's a huge way of start. And on the right side of the start, you can um, kind of hop this little air barrier and run up and down the start crowd. So I'm super hopeful, even though the streets are narrow, because there will be less people, that people will be able to at least use the sidewalk adjacent to the road where the runners are lined up to kind of do some strides and get moving. So those are my initial thoughts about it. As far as the expo, I'm thinking because it's October that they will have tents outside with tables and there will not be, you know, a big, uh, you know, a bunch of vendors there this year, but rather it would be something where you line up according to your bib number and pick up your bib. And, and then the rest of it would be virtual, like a virtual goodie bag, perhaps, and um, virtual vendors. So we'll see. But you know what? I have no doubt 
for anyone who's listening that's hesitating, just if you get in, just do it. Because even though it may not be the same Boston as what what Boston typically is, no Boston is ever the same. There's always something unique about Boston. So you we know that it. we have our the hot year, the, the monsoon year, the nor'easter year. The we have a lot of right. And but but it, but you raise a really good point that we've gotten so um, so accustomed to how Boston operates, how you know the the rhythm of Boston, that we really are going to have to reevaluate how. Um, runners go into it mentally and 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 in terms of just logistics and preparation um, and and we may not know we're not you know we we love Boston and we are good at um, training for Boston and giving tips on Boston because we've done it so many times and this is going to be a totally different uh, you know like you said a lot of it may be guessing and just get making our best educated guess on what it's actually going to feel like when you're there so that's a a really good point and um, I don't think it should deter anybody but. It's just something to think about, especially for those of us who've run Boston before, is that it's going to, it was, you know, and it's it's not dissimilar to the year after the bombings when we had to adjust when we couldn't bring, you know, years ago, we used to be able to bring like chairs or, you know, whole big bags of things to, to Athletes Village. And you could just then put it in a bag and put it on a bus and it would get back to, to Boston. And then after the explosions and the, the bombings that year, the next year, we could only bring a fanny pack size of things. And we had to we had to pivot and adjust and figure out, okay, how do we now bring all the nutrition, all the stuff that we like to bring that we can't, you know, what do you do with your phone? If you don't want to run with your phone, if you don't bring it with you to Hopkinton. So some of us went without our phone. So it was, a, it would, that was an adjustment. And I think this is going to be um, an adjustment and that we just don't know how it plays out until we get much closer. Great point. Yeah. So we'll figure it out and it'll provide us with a lot of conversation leading up to the race regardless. So, um, yeah, and I will say that after speaking with our guest today, Dr. Singh, the one thing that we are going to continue to emphasize, but even a little more because we already do, is the importance of sleep. Oh my gosh, um, everyone listening, please stay tuned for this interview because this information is gold. Dr. Singh is amazing. And I think it's so cool that she has made she, her specialty is sleep because for those of you who have been listening since the beginning, early in our podcast, we had on Christy Ashwadon who wrote good to go. She's a New York times bestseller. And a couple of years ago, she wrote a book about all the different recovery methods and her book revealed in spite of all of these fancy recovery modalities, the most effective recovery modality is sleep. So it comes full circle because we um, have been talking uh, with each other about having a sleep specialist on our podcast. And we did some research and we found Dr. Singh, uh, who has been quoted in a number of publications, but we didn't realize until today when we interviewed her that she was the person quoted and good to go. So it comes full circle. But what is so cool about Dr. Singh, in addition, of course, to the fact that she is someone who is a sleep medicine specialist, is that she has also served as a consultant for multiple NFL, MLB, including the Nets, NHL, and NBA teams. And she's also worked with college sports teams and large organizations, including CEOs and other executives who are aiming for success in the global world. So she's someone who's actually advocating in all these Fortune 500 companies. Naps are great, which is amazing. And her principal philosophy is that 
we need to cut through the hype and disinformation about sleep and provide an evidence-based guide to getting your sleep right. So she travels the country and speaks with teams and organizations on how these teams and organizations can get the most out of their players and employees through practicing quality sleep. So she's coming on our podcast next to talk to us about not just the importance of sleep, what we can do to um, improve our sleep and why we as athletes especially need to really focus on our sleep. So before we go and before we turn it over to Dr. Singh, we want to announce the winner of our monthly contest. We um, had a contest this week where we asked people to either share our podcast on social media or review it. Um, We did it through our podcast last week and also a little bit on Instagram. And we appreciate everyone who entered and commented. And we so appreciate the reviews. It means the world to us and it really helps others find us. So Thank you. Thank you for those of you who left reviews on iTunes. So without further ado, um, we have a winner who we randomly selected for our giveaway from Lily Trotters, Spybelt, and Ufos. Yep. Congratulations to Kevin Richardson, who um, told us that he's not on social media, but he told all his running pals about our podcast and sent us an email, like we asked, to tell us that he did that and was worried that it may not qualify him, but it certainly did at sharing um, sharing our podcast and sharing uh, sharing that with your, your running networks is um, great, no matter how you do it. And we know some of you are not on social media. So um, his name was drawn. And Kevin, we will get in touch with you uh, to get your contact information and make sure that we get you that goodie bag of some of our favorite things. All right. Well, thanks. And Lisa, I'm so excited for everyone to hear our conversation with Dr. Singh. I hope that you have a really great and restful week. I was just going to say, let's go now. Try to get to sleep early. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Dr. Mita Singh, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We are So delighted that you are taking the time to join us today to talk about a very important subject for runners and non-runners, and that is sleep. So before we delve into sleep and what it's all about, could you please introduce yourself to our listeners and share a little bit about why you decided to become a sleep medicine doctor? Okay, so I, um, well, I'm a sleep medicine doctor. My name is Dr. Mita Singh. And so when I I finished my psychiatry training at Mayo Clinic, and then I did a training in sleep medicine fellowship at the Henry Ford Sleep Disorder Center. And I've been in practice there since um, 2005, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I basically discovered sleep while doing a rotation in my final year. And like, see, sleep is so interesting. I was instantly hooked because what's not to like about sleep, right? It's, it's fascinating. And, and, and in fact, you know, at that time, we didn't really have much sleep training in medical school. And so it was, there was enough mystery and excitement to keep anyone hooked. And uh, so that's how I started in it. Now in your practice, what, what types of patients do you see and, and what types of issues do you, do you treat? So at the Henry Ford Sleep Disorder Center, where I have my clinical practice, it's 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 a unique place to practice. So I'm part of this, you know, multidisciplinary team, and we basically see patients of all ages who have sleep disorders. And then as part, so any kind of any sort of sleep disorder, so either excessive daytime sleepiness or problems sleeping at night or something strange happening while they're sleeping. And and I also am affiliated with Sleep Research. So, you know, the Henry Ford R Sleep Center is like one of the top funded centers. And we 
our focus is either insomnia or effects of shift work or long-term effects of not getting enough sleep or you know the effects of drugs and alcohol on sleep. And then of course, I, um, on my own, I have a niche practice in which I uh, work with advising and helping professional as well as college athletes and professional and college athletic teams with their sleep needs. So when did you start this niche of treating athletes? And, and generally, what sports do you, do you treat? Uh, what types of sports are these athletes playing in, and do you treat them differently? So I want to say, you know, if, if you had asked me, uh, if you had asked me 15 years ago, I would have, my jaw would have fell open because I wasn't even thinking of getting into, into this field. But it just happened by, I guess, happenstance is the correct way to describe it. I started with the local NFL team here because they needed some help with sleep about, when I say eight years ago. And, and then you know, it's a very small world. So I started working with the first, with the local NFL team. Then I worked with the major league baseball team and people in this, in these fields, they, they often, you know, they change, they go to different, um, uh, to different teams. And so I got, you know, I, I got invited to work with different teams. So I've, I work with almost all the four major um, leagues. So NFL, NHL, NBA, um, MLB, I've done some consulting with uh, soccer. I've done, I worked a little bit with the WTA um, for tennis and, and I have worked with a few individual um, um, golfers too. Um, and, and, and of course, you know, in the last few years I've, I've also started working a little bit with entertainers and I've helped uh, when we were allowed to travel and they used to go touring, I would help them with jet lag, et cetera. Oh, that's um, that's fascinating, and it's interesting to me that that um, you know professional sports or you know athletics came to you to to help with sleep. Why? How does sleep impact uh, sports performance, and why why is sleep? And we talk to our runners about this all the time. But tell us, you know, from your perspective, why is sleep so important, especially to pro- professional athletes? Well, and I, I tell people that sleep is, you know, it touches everything. There is not a single aspect of athletic performance as well as health that is not affected by getting enough sleep. So let's count the ways, right? First of all, if you don't get enough sleep, your reaction time is impaired. So you're slower, you're less accurate. It affects your decision-making capability. It contributes to errors. There is less amount of growth hormone that's being secreted. The amount of testosterone uh, that is secreted is, is impaired. Um, you know, it impairs the way that we metabolize glucose and the way, you know, which is what our muscles use. It increases our chances of getting injured. And once you're injured, if you don't get enough sleep, you don't recover very well. I mean, like I said, there's every aspect. And of course, you know, there is not a single aspect of your health that is not affected if you don't get enough sleep. Yeah, that's something we tell our runners all the time. We actually um, always refer to them to a book, um, Good to Go by Christy Ashwanden, who did a study on all of, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but did a study on all the recovery modalities, you know, massage and um, cryotherapy and everything that we as runners or athletes use to, to work on, uh, help improve our recovery. And the only proven recovery modality that she discovered in the end was sleep. So, so we I want to know, she interviewed me for that book. So oh, great. Well, that's, <laughs> I am in that book. Um, and I remember having that conversation with her in which, you know, because she had 
you know, she's a phenomenal. She had done all her research and she's like, well, none of this is true. So and, and we had talked about, um, you know, all the work that we did for sleep. And you're right. It, you know, yeah, the only thing that really, really has science behind it is what you naturally do, which is sleep. Right. And it's free and it, you know, you don't have to go anywhere to do it or have a special you know, therapist or well, unless you have, you know, some some challenges with sleep. But what what actually physiologically happens when we sleep um, to promote everything you were just talking about, reaction time, decision making um, physiologically? What 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 happens when we sleep? OK, so so, you know, for your for your listeners, it's important to know that sleep is a it's a reversible. It's a behavioral state. There's disengagement from the environment and then there is unresponsiveness to the environment. And it's the key word here is reversible, which is how we differentiate it from coma, right? Because when you, you know, you can't really wake somebody up else from when they have a coma. And we spend a third of our life sleeping, which if, if that didn't serve an absolutely essential purpose, I mean, that would be a colossal wastage of time. And because while we are asleep, our minds and bodies are forced to rest and disengage. So that's where any sort of restoration happens. And so the short answer is that sleep matters because it's essential to life. I mean, it's, it's a biological need. And, and it's basically when you're offline, that you're preparing, your body sort of hits a reset button and readies you for the next day. In fact, yeah. you know, if I, I mean, if I may say, you know, I, I just want to digress here just for a minute because yeah, sure. there's this really interesting um, paper I just recently read, and what they were they're they're looking at artificial intelligence, and they found that machines too, you know, unless they have a period of rest, hmm. they tend to stop functioning. So it's, you know, that rest, sleep, site and uh, active cycle is something that just is an integral part of, um, you know, uh, existence. So let's talk about like how, how does somebody know how much sleep that they need then? And what, what is, you know, so many of us say, okay, well, I'm getting eight hours of sleep, but, you know, I'm tossing and turning or, you know, I'm uh, or up in the middle of the night. So how much sleep do we need and what, what constitutes, sleep? what counts as sleep? Okay, so, so, so think about three different aspects of sleep. There's one is the quantity, which is, even, you know, you, you mentioned eight hours. Then there's something called the quality. And then very importantly, it's the timing of your sleep. So, you know, quantity is, you know, how much sleep you're getting. And on an average, seven to nine hours for the adult is that's what we say you need. And the quantity of sleep is, is important, is very, very important. And in fact, at some point, I would say even more important than um, the quality. So, you know, it's like calories, right? You have to take a minimum amount of calories to sustain life. If you, you know, it's similarly with, with the amount of sleep you get. If you don't get enough sleep to sustain, you know, health, I don't really care what the quality of your sleep is, right? It's, it's, Getting enough hours is important. And we know any, anybody getting less than six hours is likely to have some impairment. Um, the, you know, and then good quality sleep is defined as if you, if you fall asleep within half an hour, if you are asleep for about 85% of the time. And you know, we can later talk about all the things that might help you, like you know, keeping your bedroom cold and dark, et cetera. But then one thing that often people miss out on is the timing of sleep. 
right? And so you want your sleep to be aligned to your biological clock. And so some people are, you know, they're, they're, they're night owls or some people are morning larks and you want, you, you know, it would be best if we can sleep in accordance to our, our biological clock. And that's actually one thing that happened during COVID. So in the last one year, what happened is that because people didn't have to wake, wake up and go anywhere, so they could allow, they would allow themselves to go to sleep a little later and they could wake up later because they didn't have to travel somewhere. And um, of course, there were other things that happened with it, which we won't, you know, we don't have to go into right now. But but that was one thing that people, especially teenagers, were able to sleep in, um, in accordance to their biological clock. Yeah, that's something I think both Julie and I have mentioned we've seen with our kids is that our kids are functioning. We have teenagers. And they're functioning much better now that they are kind of sleeping according to their not they're not waking up at six o'clock in the morning to get to the school to get to school. They have a couple more hours in the morning and they may be going to sleep a little bit later at night, but they're they're just functioning their their focus in school and um they're they're functioning much better now that they're sleeping according to their own schedules versus before where they were trying to get in bed by a certain time because they had to wake up by six a.m. So that's um, you know, apart from athletes and runners, uh, just we're noticing that that in our, in our, in our own teens, is it, is it possible to get too much sleep? I mean, a lot of us during COVID have been sleeping a lot. Is it possible to get, if we're sleeping 10, 12 hours, is that, I mean, I know for myself, sometimes if I sleep that much, I feel a little sluggish the next day. Is that possible? So we should differentiate what you, so, you know, occasionally because you sleep 10 to 12 hours because you were playing catch up because you were right, you know, maybe you were getting less sleep is perfectly fine, but regularly getting nine plus hours of sleep well, it is, you know, that's, that sort of oversleeping is linked to a host of medical problems. So I know diabetes, heart disease, and uh, I hate to say this, increased risk of death. So, but, you know, there are a couple of things you have to keep in mind. Number one is we know that depression and, and um, low socioeconomic status is strongly associated with oversleeping. Uh, and, and it may be, it may be that, you know, people with lower social socioeconomic status, they may not be seeking help. So they may have undiagnosed sleep disorders. And so it, it is kind of important to, if you think on a regular basis, you're getting more than nine or 10 hours of sleep. I think it's, I think it's important to go get that evaluated. And the best thing would be to talk to your primary care doctor who could then further, you know, send you to see somebody else. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, so, and let's go to the other spectrum for, for you know, you mentioned, um, that, that quantity of sleep is is important. Um, at what point does the quality of sleep start to start to impact um, all of the things that we talked about before? So um, you know, especially we work with a lot of women who are going through menopause, so may have mm -hmm. hot flashes mm -hmm. that are disrupting their sleep, and you know, very get very nervous and stressed out that they know they need the sleep, but they can't get the sleep, and it's this kind of cycle of um, you know that they're they're frustrated and that that makes them not sleep well, and and they're wondering how much that's that's affecting. So at when do you start to feel, what are the impacts of, of poor sleep? And when do you start to feel those uh, other than like, you know, less than six hours? Are there other, um, and maybe specific disorders that you want to talk to, or um, what are the red flags for somebody who's thinking like my sleep maybe impact my, just my life or my specific to our podcast, my running? Right. I want to tell you that you have two separate questions in there. And I'm, I, I want to make sure that I answer the second question, which was about both, you know, perimenopausal women. So remind me to, to talk about that. Sure. So, but, you know, I mean, the impact of not getting enough sleep or poor sleep is, 
you know, it's there's that impact that you have the next day, right? If you if you spend the night tossing and turning, and you you know you're going to feel tired and maybe you know out of sorts the next day, or a little cranky. That's kind of normal, but but the long term effects are also very very real. And I and I want to bring that up because sometimes people don't. You know, it's not just that you're going to be sleepy and tired the next day, but it it really does put your physical and mental health at risk. So you know, let's start from the brain. So it, it interferes with learning and memory, you know. So I, I, I'll tell you, people, you know, whatever you learn during the day, your brain hits that save button only while you're asleep. So you need sleep to do that. And one of the, one of the signs of a good memory is the ability to prune out or, or to get rid of unnecessary information that you've taken in. And, you know, that you might lose that if you if you don't get enough sleep. You might not you might not be able to do that, sorry. Um, so all of those college and law school all-nighters that we pulled really weren't productive because we weren't hitting the save button. No, no, but you you probably you were probably saving it in your short-term memory and you were just getting there and doing taking your exam and then promptly forgetting it, right? I mean, so you, well, you know, and so also, also, you know, speaking about college, I mean, you know, it, sleep is really important for like coming up with novel solutions, right? I mean, what happens when you're sleeping is you take in this new information, it goes and gets, you know, interacts with the previously stored information and you come up with, you know, solutions to whatever you're thinking about. And I mean, that's why we say you sleep on a problem. We never say you eat on a problem, right? I mean, you, you let, you let that happen while you're asleep. Um, um, you know, so, so your problem solving abilities, your creativity, that really, that's what happens when you're, when you're asleep. Uh, You know, you, the other thing is, is mental health issues, right? I mean, if you don't get enough sleep, you're likely to be moody. It makes you more anxious the next day. You're likely to be, you know, quick tempered. And so it aggravates all sort of mental health issues. And of course, it's like, it's a, it's a vicious cycle because if you have anxiety and you, so then you're going to sleep poorly the next night. And that, you know, so it's really, really important. And I have to tell you, because I, when I work with professional sports, you know, destigmatizing mental health is really, really important. And I always tell people, you cannot speak about mental health without giving sleep health a seat, a major, you know, a big seat at that table. You have to discuss how they're sleeping. Um, well, and and then uh, I, I think, and again, you know, coming back to the, the teenagers, you know, one of the things that happens when you don't get enough sleep is um, increased risk of drowsy driving the next day, right? So, and that's like one of the top reasons for, you know, fatalities in the younger population. And there's study that show that if you're drowsy and you're driving, you're likely to be distracted, right? Because maybe you're on the phone because you're trying to keep yourself awake and, uh, you know, honestly, uh, and we, uh, we talked about this already, like every major organ, so your heart, your, you know, blood pressure, your, you know, you, you're likely to gain weight, you can develop diabetes, it impairs your, your immunity. So, in fact, I, you know, I, I would challenge people to point out one thing that is not affected by not getting enough sleep. But I wanted to, uh, you know, I, I don't want to like ramble on too long, but you mentioned, you mentioned perimenopause right and see and that's kind of unique because what happens is that around the perimenopausal area a uh, time in your life you may start developing problems initiating and maintaining sleep despite the opportunity to do so and 
um, and, and and that and that can be problematic and uh, you know that that is something that that women should address and uh, you know and and to a certain extent because I, I you know when I work with female athletes they may have they may sleep poorly uh, just before their period and you know those those fourteen days leading up to their period and then then they have this golden period when it's after the period when they sleep really really well and. And you know, talking to the athlete, the female athlete, is really important because some this is something this sometimes may even be a taboo uh, subject, and you want to talk about it so that we can learn to address it properly. You know, so that's just another thing to keep in mind. What are your thoughts about um, before we go into talking about athletes and sleep specifically? How do you feel about uh, caffeine, and how do you feel about melatonin? Okay, so so. Um, to, for your, you know, again, to understand what caffeine does, it's important to understand, um, uh, you know, a little bit of neurobiology. So it's, it's a very simple question, um, 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 answer. What happens is that while you're awake, the longer you're awake, we have this, um, substance that accumulates in your brain. It's called adenosine. It's a sleepiness factor. And the higher the adenosine, the sleepier you're going to be. And what caffeine does it, it goes and attaches itself to the place in your, in your brain, to those receptors where adenosine gets attached and makes you sleepy. So it blocks the effect of adenosine. So it, it, what it does is it blocks the, and so it is, it's, you know, it's pretty, it does improve your reaction time. It definitely improves. It makes you more accurate. The, the two things that I want to point out is number one is that it takes about 20 to 25 minutes to take effect. And, but then it's half-life is about five to six hours. And, and, you know, it's different for different people, but which means that if you have an evening race and you drink a cup of coffee, you know, just before your evening race at 7 PM or ca- take caffeine in any, of any form, it's still going to be in your system when you're trying to fall asleep later that night. Right. That's number one. The number two thing is, you know, it's very ubiquitous. So you may have, it may be in your post-workout drink. You may not even realize it, right? So of course, dig, dig, you know, drinking a double espresso after dinner is a bad idea. However, sometimes people are not intending to do it and don't realize that it's, it's present in chocolate, for example. It's present in some workout drinks. And that's something to keep in mind. And of course, for some people, you know, it may not prevent them from falling asleep, but it will lighten your sleep. So you won't go into deeper stages of sleep. So, and hence it'll, it'll mess up with your sleep. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want you to feel, I don't want to give the impression that caffeine is not performance enhancing. It is. And oftentimes players will use it, but you just have to be careful and strategic in the way you use it so that you can take the benefits and yet it doesn't prevent you from sleeping. Does that help? And then of course uh, you said melatonin. So melatonin this is this natural hormone that your brain secretes in response to darkness. So now you, you can get you know, synthetic uh, melatonin. And I would say, I would say to your audience that first of all, you know, melatonin is not according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, not recommended for long-term treatment of insomnia. Occasional nights of use is perfectly fine. But if you're going to be taking melatonin to help you sleep, well, 
maybe you need to go see a doctor, right? Maybe, maybe that sleep issue needs to be further evaluated. That helps. So we want to we ask first, before we talk about sleep and athletes specifically, can you uh-huh. tell us and our listeners, uh-huh. what are your tips for effective sleep hygiene? Okay. So, so, you know, what is, let's define what uh, effective sleep hygiene is, right? It's just basically preparing yourself and your environment for a good night of sleep, right? And so small things like keeping your bedroom cold, dark, keeping it free of light, you know, don't play video games while you're in bed, don't work while you're in bed, and, you know, don't... um, uh, keep reserve your bedroom for you know sexual activity and 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 for sleep so that your you can your mind associates your bedroom to that those activities uh, so those are some of the things that you can do but then also also there's some things that you can do personally so I, I'll tell you the top three offenders we already talked about one of them which is caffeine right don't drink caffeine too close to your bedtime uh, don't drink too much alcohol too close to your bedtime so alcohol may not prevent you from falling asleep, but then it does, um, as it gets metabolized through the night, it, it ruptures your sleep and wakes you up. And, you know, you may not realize that. And then of course, they don't drink, you know, don't, don't um, smoke or use tobacco, you know, in any form too close to your bedtime. So it's really simple things. Um, yeah, that would work. And then of course there is, I, I have to tell you, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of human variability, right? So for me, you know, I like the bedroom to be a certain temperature and I don't want any light coming through. And then for somebody else, they may actually, and I I like it to be quiet for somebody else. If they're living in a, you know, in a New York apartment and it's noisy outside, they might, they they may want a, um, a noise machine. You know, they may, you know, they may want to wear eye shades. So, you know, you have to individualize. What about screen time? I mean, we, we know the answer to this, but I think it's just good to hear a reminder with everyone charging their phones in the evenings and, and many people charging their phones in their bedrooms. What are some specific hygiene habits for screens, phones, iPads, etc.? Okay, so I wanted, I'm, I'm glad you brought up this question because the answer is pretty nuanced. I know there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of talk about screen time. And I you know, we should discuss this because I think, I think that, you know, there'd be, the reason why screen time is not good may be different from what people are thinking. So here's the backstory, right? So we have this biological clock, it's in our brain and it's, it's follows a 24 hour cycle. So when we wake up and, you know, sun enters our eyes, um, we start, we, you know, that's like, that light is like an alertness pill. And then in darkness, melatonin is secreted that makes you sleepy. Now, the problem is, so, so the one thing for, for that clock that we have in our brain, the, mo- the strongest, it's called the Zeitgeber, or the strongest signal is always light, right? So light can actively suppress the melatonin, which is signaling your brain that you're ready to sleep. So now that's the background. With that background, you know, all your devices like your cell phones, your tablets, I don't know, readers and computers, they do have their backlit and they usually have um, short wavelength light, enriched light. And, 
and of course that can suppress your melatonin but um, maybe maybe not as much as they say in you know in the media you know you you're almost there's actually more light that's coming from from the fluorescent and led lights which are overhead right we we go into the bathroom to brush our teeth all the lights are on and then we you know we do that in bright light and then we go to our beds and expect to fall asleep but the the main reason i think that the screen time may, might be bad is would be because of the interactive nature right so you get into your onto the, uh, um, the screen time and you're playing video games well you know video games are designed to make you play more like a rabbit hole sometimes you're up you know my teenagers playing video games playing with other teenagers other classmates so keeping them up too <laughs> so you know and and then of course it's difficult to keep track of time and and i always tell people that you know that's the funny thing because we live such busy lives that you know when we, we when we get home at night sometimes that's the first time that we're thinking and we we feel well you know we deserve some me time and oftentimes for younger people this me time is time spent on electronics, right? You can either watch Netflix or you can play video games, et cetera. And then it might start out as this de deliberate procrastination saying that, you know, I deserve this me time. But then the problem is that it turns into this mindless procrastination because after some time, like you, you decided to watch one episode and now the three episodes later and we're, you know, still watching, you know? And so, so that's another thing to, uh, to keep in mind. So, I would say, you know, screens are bad, but more because of the interactive thing. Then I, I you know, I understand, especially for teenagers, like you read a book, you know, if you, if you read your homework, you're likely to fall asleep. Yeah, I think that's a good point that our, I think it activates our brains where, you know, the brains are thinking or, or they're, you know, thinking about the show that you watched or like you said, kind of activating your brains and the rabbit hole analogy is a good one because I think we all do that. We all say, I'm just going to check one thing very quickly yep. and then all of a sudden it's much later. So, um, so we appreciate that and we'll certainly pass that along to our teenagers as well. So let's, let's transition um, to, to athletes and to your work with athletes and um, tell us what, do you, do you see any kind of common um, threads among athletes, um, challenges that they have with sleep when you're working with these teams? Are there, are there common threads that you see that are, are kind of unique to athletes? Oh, yes. I mean, oh, and the, the thing about athletes is that, uh, you know, that lifestyle that from outside looks so glamorous really isn't. And, and you know, their schedules, their competition schedules, their training schedules, themselves result in problems with sleep, right? So, you know, largely I would say three separate categories. The first is that because of the, how busy they are, you know, they're on a regular basis are not getting enough sleep. So sleep less, you know, poor sleep or sleep deprivation tends to accumulate during the season. The second of course, is that when they're traveling, they may cross time zones, they get jet lag, they have to get to a new time zone, they have to play immediately, they may be playing at different times, they have to sleep in strange beds. I mean, you know, multiple reasons for them to, um, for that to happen, of course. And then the third thing is that sometimes, um, you know, they may have individual sleep issues, you know, and they may not have a sleep disorder, but just by being an athlete, they're playing in the evening, you know, they get done from the game, 
their cortisol levels are high, their, their body temperatures are high, it's difficult for them to wind down. They may, they may be anxious, they may be anxious, uh, you know, before an, a big race, they may be anxious after the race, they may be anxious because they didn't do very well, or they may be so excited because they did well, that might keep them up. And then, you know, they have these expectations of themselves. And then and they have to, they have to cope with the expectation of the public, right, and of their coaches and of their family members. And, you know, all of that together can be a recipe for poor sleep. So there, there are different ways or, or there are different um, avenues to, to approach it. It has to be done, um, you know, in a, on an individual basis. I think you brought up some great points though that are applicable to um, amateur athletes like us. First of all, um, talk to us a little bit about the athlete who, um, decides that their best time for them to fit in their workout is early, early in the morning. And that's when, you know, maybe they're, they're busy throughout the rest of the day. And so they wake up extra early, they work out really early in the morning, and then they go about their day, um, get that fatigue around four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, first of all, would you advise that athlete to um, take a nap if they can? And my second question is, when that athlete is overtired as a result of getting up earlier than what would, might be natural for their biological clock, as you referred to earlier, do you think it's a good idea for that athlete to continue working out early in the morning or would you give different advice for that? Well, so I, I will say that, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that just overscheduling and early practices or late competitions and frequent travel, all of this makes sleep much more difficult in athletes. Now, uh, you know, what you bring up is, is, is really an important point, right? And a lot of them will, especially if you're, if you, if you are a student or if you, you know, a full-time mother, right? With a with a law practice and a podcast that you're hosting, well, the only time you can fit in sleep would be early in the morning, right? And so, I, it, to me, I always tell people that you have to. It's important to recognize that sleep is a biological clock. And although, although tra training and exercise are very important, they're not a biological need. Let me let me let me correct myself. I said I used the word the wrong word. I don't mean biological. Sleep is a biological need, not a clock. A need. While um, you know, exercise it makes it keeps you healthy, but may not be a need. So really, you know, helping. Um, trying to work around the schedule really helps. And yes, sometimes when that's the only time you can fit it in, then being consistent on a regular basis to try to get enough sleep, um, you know, getting to bed on time and then, um, you know, getting enough sleep so that when you wake up, you know, you feel sort of refreshed. And when in that mid afternoon, when you have that dip in your alertness, maybe take a nap. And naps are good because they, they contribute and they count towards the total number of, of sleep hours in a 24 hour period. And, um, you know, and, and, and to be honest, sometimes even a 10 to 20 minute nap will make you more refreshed. Um, and it, it, there's research, it shows it, it increases, you know, memory and learning and all the, all those good things. Uh, you know, I, I tell people if you were, like preparing for an event and you knew you were going to sleep poorly before the event, 
the best thing you could do is to sleep well leading up to that night before the event. Does that make sense? Yeah, we appreciate hearing that because actually we put that in the race prep for all of our runners who are preparing for marathons. And we start talking about two weeks out saying, this is the time to get your good sleep because you know that you probably will not sleep the night the night before the race very well. But but what's important are these, you know, next two weeks. So we actually encourage our runners about two weeks out and we even put it in their race prep of if you've slept well the week leading up to the race, don't worry, don't stress out too much if you don't sleep yes. well the night before the race, that's normal. So that's very reassuring to hear from a from a professional, from an expert, that that is true, that, that really it's that sleep in the couple of weeks leading up to it. Well, and, and there's, you know, it's called sleep banking. It's not, it's not as if you're like oversleeping, but most of us are walking around with some amount of sleep deprivation. And, um, you know, and, and, and for, you know, there's actually a study that shows that what they did is that they, you know, they took um, people and, and in one ex- part of the experiment made sure that they were they got enough sleep before they went into the sleep deprivation situation and they were there, you know, their functions and on whatever tests they were doing were better preserved. It was because, uh, because they, you know, they had filled their pot of sleep before they went into that situation. Right. I mean, if I'm going to be on call on Friday, the best thing I can do for myself is to get enough sleep Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, leading up to Friday, knowing I'm going to get less sleep. And so that's, yeah, that's, that's the small thing to do. So anyone who's listening, who's going to be a new parent, there's some advice for you (laughs) is to uh, get a lot of sleep leading up to the event, because you certainly won't want that baby comes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But also, also you could, you know, once, of course, once the baby's here, you want to make sure you try to like nap when the baby is napping. And and, and, I mean, I have three children. I had, I have a pair of twins who are 14. So uh, I remember how ghastly that time was. So yes, but, but, you know, and, and when people say it takes a village, we don't live in villages, don't have, but, but as much help as possible as you can get. Um, yes, that's, that is, that is right. I mean, I remember it, it, it was a, it was, you know, it's like a blur, right? Yeah, actually, that's funny. I have twins that just turned 15 and I have one that's 19 months younger than them. So you and I, 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 that, that I actually likened the sleep deprivation at the beginning, um, to like, to tort, you can tell why people are tortured through sleep deprivation, because really you do all the things you talked about before reaction time, decision-making memory, um, all of that was out the window. And and that was a very, um, that was a very trying time. So that's funny. And now, now they sleep until, you know, noon. So, so I keep telling my, the people I meet with twins that are very little, I said, one day you'll have to be waking them up and, and forcing them to get out of, to get out of bed. So I want to go back to one thing you mentioned before about, um, people who wake up very, very early in the morning and, you know, maybe their biological need is when we can sleep, when we want, we may go to bed later and wake up later. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say, you know, you're just somebody who works, like you said, a full-time mom, somebody who works mm-hmm. and you have to get up. That's, you want to be able to get up early, go to bed early and get up early. Is it possible to change your kind of your, that biological clock, that natural, um, is it possible to change that over time by getting yourself to go to bed early and waking up early? Or is, you know, is it kind of like we've learned during the pandemic when we shifted to kind of the natural, um, is, is that hard to do? Well, it, it, is, it is a little difficult to do only because it takes discipline, right? So if you're an, but it's called chronotherapy. We do that in clinic all the time. Sometimes I'll have, um, you know, I'll have, patients who are uh, teenagers who are like can't fall asleep till about three in the morning right and then obviously they have to wake up at 6 30 maybe seven o'clock and you know it's a big challenge because parents are 
you know, there's a lot of argument, they're trying to get them awake, and then at night they're trying to get them to sleep. And these are not, they're not, these children are not being lazy. This is, they're biologically wired to be this way. The problem is the schedule, not the child. But, and, and we do do, so with strategic use of the morning light in the morning, and uh, occasionally we, you know, we may use melatonin or other, you know, something to help them sleep at night. And taking away electronics, etc. we can get them to go to bed a little earlier and wake up earlier, but then you have to be very disciplined because you can't do that on the weekend. You can't, you can't let them sleep in, right? Because it, otherwise it's for a night owl, it would be like, it's like uh, traveling from somebody living in New York, going to LA for just a weekend. And then on, you know, on, on Sunday night, you're suddenly flew back to New York and now are expected to fall asleep and it's going to be very, very difficult. I, I have to tell you that, that there is there's this really elegant study. It was done in Colorado. They took, to, you know, there were mostly young adults. And of course there were, you know, there were you know, a good percentage of night owls and then some morning people. And like, and, and of course most people are in between. And what they did is they took them into the woods and there was no artificial light. And most of them were actually falling asleep on light when it got dark. And so it just shows you know, how profound that artificial light is. So if you're a night owl, that makes you even more sensitive to light, bright light exposure in the evening. So just something to keep in mind. And then of course there are certain, um, there's certain medication, you know, some antidepressants and some other situations in which you become more sensitive to night owl, to, to the exposure of bright light in the night and that can make things worse. So we now have established, and you've absolutely convinced us, that sleep really is the superpower that we can all have to be able to be better athletes, better thinkers, better humans. So if because you treat so many high-level athletes, can you give us a couple of specific examples um, as to how your um, sleep tips and sleep advice for athletes has actually improved performance? Well, uh, so, you know, when it comes to individual athletes, my preference, because because of HIPAA and because of privacy, I really can't talk about them. I, I can talk about, let me think about athletes who, the, so there's this one athlete, his name is, who've actually spoken about their work with me in the press, because then they've talked about it. So Kyle Vanoy, he works in the NFL, was at the Patriots, I don't know if he's still there with them, but I remember that he given he once spoke about um, you know how he had um, you know a sleep disorder. We diagnosed him, and he felt like he was a new human being. I can talk a little bit briefly. I, you know, I know you mentioned I, I worked with the um, with the Nationals when they won. Yes, the, we were going sport. to get to that. We were we were going to get to that and ask because we live in the DC area. When we saw that you helped the Nationals during the year that they went to the World Series and won, of course. Talk yes. to us and give us some details about what you did for our home team. Okay. And, well, so and I want you to know, ladies, to know that they sent me a World Series ring, which was like pretty fantastic. That's amazing. That so Can you take amazing. a picture of it for us? Yes, I will. I, I promise you I'll send it to you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was, it was, you know, I have to tell you, I, I'm a, I'm an immigrant and I, you know, I came here and I worked really hard. It, it was, it just, it's such a tremendously humbling experience to get this, you know, this 
it just, I mean, what can I say? Obviously I'm, I'm lost for words. Um, so, you know, the, the Washington Nationals, and typically, you know, I have to tell you that for most, when I'm working with teams, it's really very similar to the kind of work I do with most teams. Uh, you know, I, I talk to them, I, you know, I do some education because it's important to talk to them, to have these clear, candid conversations about sleep and to, to talk to not just the, the athletes and the coaches, but to the front office people and everybody because they travel and they, you know, they have all these, they, these difficult schedules and you want to, you want to teach them about the biology so they understand how to fit sleep into their lives. I do, I do use some screening tools, athlete specific screening tools to identify those players who may have issues with sleep so that we can at least address them, you know, especially we do try to do this always during preseason. But, and, and I have to, the other thing I have to tell you is that, you know, that's one way that you can differentiate excellent teams from other teams is when you have team members who listen, right? Because I, I, I invariably say the same thing. And, and oftentimes, you know, coaches and, you know, people who've been doing this for a long time, you know, the, they have, they may have, they may have more dysfunctional beliefs about sleep. And they, they feel this is, you know, this is what we've done all this time. And why should we be doing something different? And so if you can get the team to buy in, and listen to the science and then also provide cues. So I know that for, for the nationals, I, which is something that I do with a lot of other teams is that I, I would send them information of exactly their schedule, what it should be all throughout. And I, I you know, one of the most gratifying moments I had is I, I remember that when they went into the postseason, uh, Harvey Sharman, he's the uh, head of performance uh, um, and I remember he sent me an email saying, where are, well, like, what are we supposed like, where do you, when do you want us to travel? Like, when do you want us to, like, do you want us to spend an extra night here? And I, I was like, what, you guys are listening to me? Like, this, you know, it, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful feeling. And I remember, you know, sending it to them and especially in the postseason, we, we really did pay a lot of attention to this. I, you know, I, I don't know if you remember those last five games, they lost against the, the Astros at home. The Astros got into a plane and flew back to Houston's. My nationals spent the night here and they woke up the next day. They were well rested when they boarded that flight the next day. And then they won the next three games. Do you remember that? When they went- Of off. course. Right. This is, is amazing. Right. Yeah, so of course you should have that ring. That's why, so that's why they sent you the ring. <laughs> well, and, I, and I, I want you to know, like, I mean, no amount of sleep is going to make me a major league baseball player. I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? Like it, you know, that innate ability that, you know, these, these are top players. It's a top team. They had great teamwork. They listened, they were doing well. They, you know, they, it was like, they, they had that momentum going for them. They supported each other. Like everything was going right for them. And, Whenever, whenever there's competition between, you know, elite players, you're looking for that competitive edge, right? Like that slight 1% change that you can get a leg up over your opponent and sleep is there, right? So showing up well-rested the next day to the ballpark, 
well, makes a big difference. When, so this when, is really interesting. So one of your major tips then was adjusting their travel schedule. Logically, looking at the big picture, my thought would have been having them get to Houston as early as possible so they could adjust and sleep in the hotel wherever they are and get used to that before the night before the game. But your advice was actually to get their sleep at home and then fly uh-huh. to Houston as close to the game as possible. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So so in this case, remember, there's not much of a time difference between Houston and, and, and these are all night games anyways, right? So anyways, the players are going to bed late and are sleeping in till about noon or one. That's what I want them to do. They're living the life of a afternoon shift worker. And that's how, that's what science supports. And what they wanted, and I, again, I, I have to tell you that because it's not just you know, what a lot of these elite athletes and runners and what they, when they're competing at that level is they want the precision, you know, sleep schedule and cues of astronauts. They want to get the same amount of precision so that they can control it as much as possible. And it's, it's you know, it makes sense. So, you know, you can talk about, and we do that all the time, right? We, we talk about, we can give them education, and, but to change habits, you sometimes, you need behavioral cues, right? This is one less thing they have to think about when they looked at their schedule and told them exactly, you know, what time they had to go to sleep, what time. And I, and I don't, and I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to simplify the process here, but it was, you know, these were complex situations. We took in a lot of things into consideration, including their flight timing, people's individual, you know, biological clock. There were some night out, there were some early mornings. Some of them were starting pitchers, some of them are, you know, closing pitchers. But you take all these complex, uh, you know, all these complex ideas, and then you try to boil it down to its simplest level so that it's simple for the athlete when he picks up his, you know, his piece of paper or, and to see what well, these are my instructions, right? And that's the whole point of having an expert on your team because they can do this work for you and make it simple, you know, make give you instructions that are easy to follow. Does that make sense? Yeah, that make that makes complete sense. And really also as coaches makes us think about, you know, when we're talking to our runners about something as simple as traveling to a race to, to plan yeah. for the race, shifting maybe their travel plan so they sleep at home and they, you know, they're not they're they're planning their travel around their race, which is you know something that um, while we've talked to them about sleep around their race, we've never really thought about that. And I think that's a really um, really important important point too. That and I and I want to I, I want to say one more thing. So I want to yeah. tell you that see it, these things would be different based on the length of travel, right? So I you know if so I work with NFL teams and you know, before COVID happened, the NFL, there'd always be a bunch of teams who would go all the way to, um, uh, to London to play London. And in that case, you're, I would recommend they go immediately after they've played that Sunday game, they get on a plane and get to London so that they can get acclimatized and used to the new time zone well ahead before the next Sunday game. Right. And so, so again, it's, it really is different. It's different for different teams. I mean, I, I've had players, I've worked with, you know, NBA teams who my recommendation is that when, it, when they're coming from the West Coast to the East Coast to try and stay on West Coast time as much as possible because it makes no sense to try and even get adjusted. They're here only for about, you know, four games and it's, 
they're not going to sleep earlier anyway. So why are we waking them up too early? So it's a nuanced way of approaching things. But yeah, that's what we do. You know, again, like we started out saying that we always tell our runners sleep is the number one recovery modality and um, and how important it is. And you mentioned, too, that especially when you're working and, and, you know, you can be working with really for us, we work with all level of athletes. They all want to achieve their personal um, mm-hmm. best. They want they want to be able to achieve it, their their potential. And, yeah. and that sleep is that extra that extra ingredient that is going to help them. They may not win the race. They may not be in a first place. They may not even be racing with the elites, but they, for them to all the training that they put in with us. And, you know, like you, we, we are the expert that comes in that gives them their training throughout months and months. And they've put in all these months of training and um, you know, maybe at the end that that's part of their, their, um, you know, their little bit of competitive advantage and, and not just on race day, but, but for us as coaches, it's really helpful for us to understand the role of sleep and how that plays through all of their, you know, their training and how that may affect a performance one day or how they feel on a training run one day. So this has been, this has been um, extremely helpful for us. And we have, like Julie said earlier, for years have been talking about having a sleep expert because it is so important. And um, it's, it, 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 it's such a, it's a specialized area. So um, you have really helped us understand and communicate with all of our listeners and us as coaches to pass along to our runners, the importance of sleep. How, how would somebody, to close this out and just kind of wrap up, how, how would somebody um, who thinks may need some help with their sleep, how would they find a sleep specialist? Where do they start? Where do they find somebody to turn to? So I would tell you that their primary care doctor or the, the NP or whoever they go to, that's the best place to begin with. Now, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has a website and you can basically put in you know, your, the zip code and uh, figure out who uh, the sleep, the sleep you know, physicians and sleep labs that are accredited by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine are. But I can, you know, in most areas, um, in most areas, Speaking to your primary care doctor is the best way to go. They'd have a network available. And, you know, in the last year and, and a half, we've, I've been doing a lot of um, remote help. So, you know, virtual visits. So we have that ability. And, you know, for p- places, people who have insomnia, uh, the, the therapy that we can do for insomnia can easily be given digitally. And so, you know, as long as you get somebody who's accredited, board certified, you know, you're in good hands. I would say that's, that's the way to go. This has been excellent, Dr. Singh. And we're, we're so grateful for your time. And we really hope that your information will empower our listeners to understand that we don't have to suffer. If you're struggling in your sleep, no matter whether you're an athlete or not, or a parent or a parent or a teen, there are things that we all can do to improve our sleep and therefore improve our lives. And we're just so grateful to you for bringing this to our attention and congratulations to you on developing such a, a wonderful practice and for helping so many athletes and, and non-athletes and allowing people to better understand the importance of sleep. We're, we're really grateful to you and we appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much. Can I say just one last thing in closing? I have to tell of you, course. I always tell people that, you know, uh, uh, Peak performance is the product of a well-rested mind. It really is. It can, and and a well-rested body. And, you know, when we talk about like the recommended amount of sleep, remember that it's a, that's a guideline. You know, sometimes people need a little bit more. Sometimes they need a little less. 
And you have to kind of figure out how to make time for sleep in our, in, in our lives because we live such busy lives. But think of sleep as an investment in your tomorrow, right? If you sleep well tonight, well, that just prepares you to give your level, put your best foot forward the next day. Love that. Sleep is an investment for your tomorrow. I think that's a great note to end on and something we all need to remember, especially during stressful times. So thank you so much, Dr. Singh. And we will provide your contact information to all of our listeners. And we know that you're also on social media and we will provide that as well. And so we hope also that you'll be able to bring another uh, World Series championship to our home team. (laughs) Well, I would be honored to contribute. And thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me a platform. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.